0: My name is David Leslie, and as the Rothko Chapel's Executive Director, it's my pleasure to welcome you this evening as we continue to celebrate the chapel's 50th anniversary. When the chapel was consecrated and dedicated February 26th through 28, 1971, along with Barnett Newman's sculpture, Broken Obelisk, dedicated to the living legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The commitment to dialogue, mutual learning, respect and justice were made clear. The chapel was to be a different type of sacred art place characterized by a new, expansive type of ecumenism inviting to the chapel people of all religious faiths and backgrounds and those with none. It was to be a place that, according to the founders John and Dominique de Manille, artist Mark Rothko and others involved in its creation would engage life's deepest questions and important societal issues. In the spirit, the Rothko Chapel was also to be both institution and movement that would work diligently to further social justice both here in the United States and beyond our borders, as captured in the poignant words of Dominic de Manil, who said the chapel upholds, and I quote, a double vocation, a vocation of hospitality, and a vocation of denouncing all forms of imperialism, whether political, economic, social, or intellectual. So it is within this context that tonight we launch a four-part series Beyond the Rhetoric, Civil Rights, and Our Shared Responsibility. This series offers a unique suite of virtual programs featuring keynote speakers and panelists on the front lines of social justice who will help us examine, expand, and even revisit our basic understandings and approaches to some of the critical civil and human rights issues of the day. Questions to be addressed include, how have civil rights historically been understood and applied in this country, and who benefits and who's been left out? Are there certain civil rights and liberties that are particularly at risk today? Is it time to rethink basic approaches to the concepts of rights, responsibilities, and liberties? And how can we become more effective advocates and activists as we work to address injustice and create an equitable society and sustain our souls and our passion for social justice and long-haul activism? Following tonight's program, there are three additional programs in the series that will explore LGBTQIA rights, the rights of immigrants, and the concept of rights from the American Indian worldview and perspective. This series then culminates in a multi-day symposium in October, allowing further engagement with seasoned and emerging social justice leaders to explore how we all can work together to create a more equitable future for everyone. I invite you to visit the chapel's website for more information about the series and the symposium. So, with that as background, we begin the framing with tonight's program, Our Moral Obligation, Ensuring the Dignity of All, featuring the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. Reverend Bar- Dr. Barber is a president and senior lecturer of Repairs of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, A National Call for Moral Revival. He is also a visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary, pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Green Goldsboro, North Carolina, and the author of four books, including the recently published, We Are Called to Be a Movement. Among his many accomplishments and commitments, The Reverend Dr. Barber is also the architect of the moral movement, which began with weekly Moral Monday protests at the North Carolina General Assembly in 2013, and recently relaunched again online in August 2020 under the banner of the Poor People's Campaign. In 2018, Reverend Dr. Barber helped relaunch the Poor People's Campaign which was begun by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, starting with an historic wave of protests in state capitals and in Washington, DC. Protests that called for a moral agenda and a moral budget to address the five interlocking injustices of systematic racism, systemic poverty, the war economy and militarism, ecological devastation, and the false narrative of Christian nationalism. There are currently 45 state coordinating committees across the country, including Texas, mobilizing around the Poor People's Jubilee platform. And we must do more, M-O-R-E, mobilize, organize, register, and educate people for a movement that votes. As we thought about leaders who could kick off this series, clearly, the Reverend Dr. Barber was on the top of the list, and we are very grateful that he accepted our invitation. To start the program tonight, we begin with a short video about the Poor People's Campaign, followed by Reverend Dr. Barber's remarks. Upon the conclusion of his address, the Reverend Laura Mayo will engage in a conversation with the Reverend Dr. Barber. Reverend Mayo is the senior minister of Covenant Church in Houston, Texas. And in addition to serving as a member of the Rothko Chapel's board of directors, she is active in Houston interfaith work, including membership in Americans United for Separation of Church and State Clergy Advisory Group, the Coalition for Mutual Respect of the Anti Defamation League, the Faith Leaders Coalition and Interfaith Ministries for Greater Houston's Multi-Faith Council. I close my remarks this evening by thanking everyone who helped plan, participate in, and financially support today's program and the development of the series. Now let us engage in a time of contemplation and dialogue with both hope for today and the days ahead. Reverend Dr. Barber, On behalf of the Rothko Chapel and our entire community, we thank you so much for being with us tonight.
1: In 2018, there were 140 million Americans who were poor or one emergency away from economic ruin.
2: Across the country, in communities and forgotten places, poor people and low-wage workers of different races, genders, abilities, Sexualities and faiths are building a moral fusion
1: movement. We are coming together across all the lines that divide us to restructure and lift our society from the bottom up.
2: We delivered our demands. We demand. We demand. We demand.
1: We demand. We demand. demand. An immediate implementation of federal and state living wage laws
3: demand an immediate restoration of the Voting Rights Act.
2: We engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience.
3: We to follow that breaking news in Albany, where a large group of protesters have moved back into the street.
0: Today's Poor People's Campaign rally, part of simultaneous rallies in more than 30 states and Washington, D.C.
1: Over the past five weeks, nearly 2,000 people have been arrested. What organizers describe as the most expansive wave of nonviolent direct action this century.
2: Our backs are against the wall, and we got no choice but to push because it's crucial that we make ourselves heard. For a country this rich to have so many people
1: poor, it's immoral and it's wrong.
2: We testified on Capitol Hill.
1: Never before have impacted leaders gotten to march into Congress and present a budget.
2: We brought a full budget request and a movement behind it. During the pandemic, we organized the largest social media gathering of the poor in US history.
1: We mobilized, we organized, we registered, and we educated poor voters across the country. And we helped bring poverty to the national agenda. Something that hasn't come up very much tonight, but deserves a lot of attention, poverty. You know, the Poor People's Campaign is marching on Iowa right now, calling on us to talk about this issue more. Ending poverty will not just be an aspiration, It will be a theory of change to build a new economy that includes everyone. Our country now stands at a tipping point. We can realize a third reconstruction to fully address poverty and low wages from the bottom up.
3: Today we say to poor people, Mr. Speaker, we see you and we will eradicate poverty in our country with you. No democracy can claim to be strong When 140 million people or
2: 43% of its people are poor and low wealth. Now, we're organizing to realize a third reconstruction. It's time to fully address poverty and low wages from the bottom up. We are fighting forward Forward together. together
1: and not one step back.
2: I want you to know that when hands that once picked cotton join hands of latinos join hands of progressive whites join faith hands and labor hands and asian hands and native american hands and poor hands and wealthy hands with a conscience and gay hands and straight hands and trans hands and christian hands and jewish hands and muslim hands and hindu hands and buddhist hands when we all get together We are an instrument of redemption. When we join hands, we can revive and make sure that the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and equal protection under the law is never taken away from anybody. So I got a question. Are the rejected ready to revive and declare that this land is your land, this land is my land, this land is our land, and together from the State House to the White House, the rejected are going to demand that this nation never give up on being one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all.
3: Gracious God, we thank you so much for your kindness and your love and your mercy that sustains us, that keeps us, that wakes us up in the morning with our minds stayed on justice and freedom. We bless you for these 50 years. The Rothko Chapel has been involved in shaping minds and hearts and spirits. Grant to us tonight, God, your wisdom and your strength. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, our strength and blessed Redeemer. Amen. I am honored to be with you tonight. Um, and let me thank you, David, Brother Leslie, for such a gracious, gracious, gracious introduction and for allowing me space in this historic space even though we're virtual, uh, in Rothko Chapel. I greet you tonight uh, in the great spirit of love, on behalf also of my co-chair, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, the more than 45 coordinating committees around the country, of the Poor People's Campaign, more than 2000 clergy, people of faith, people who do not have religious faith, but believe in the deep moral arc of the universe, more than 300 partners. I'm also greeting you as a partial Texan. I was raised part of my life in Hawkins, Texas. My father served at Jarvis Christian College. And I also have been in Texas recently, invited there by the Poor People's Campaign in Texas. And next week we are planning and leading a four day march from Georgetown, Texas to Austin, the state capital. We are the moral resurrection. We don't need an insurrection. We need a moral resurrection to demand end the filibuster, demand fully passed the For the People Act, to fully passed the Voting Rights Act, to pass $15 living wage, and to protect our immigrant brothers and sisters, and especially DACA students and to do it by August the 6th, the day that a Texan named Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And I also want you to know that the Poor People's Campaign with all of our partners have launched a 365 day mobilization march towards a mass Poor People's Assembly, low wage workers assembly march on Washington, June 18, 2022 we hope will be the largest and historic gathering of poor and low wealth people, moral and religious leaders and economists, public health and other uh, officials and activists to shift the narrative of this nation and build power. And I certainly hope that you will consider joining us in DC on next year. When I thought about this space tonight, I could not help but go back to this past Holy Week season in 2021, as we were even in the midst of uh, this pandemic. I was invited to West Virginia, of all places, to lead an outdoor foot washing service and a rally. I was invited by members of the West Virginia Poor People's Campaign And they wanted to have this rally and they wanted to do foot washing and they wanted to challenge what they call the greed and the injustice of their senior senator joe manchin who is blocking living wages blocking has blocked 15 dollars being passed with the pandemic uh, recovery bill which would have lifted 32 million poor and low wealth people out of poverty and low wealth, five million in Texas alone and 40% of black people, working black people. He also is blocking voting rights laws uh, in a way that would hurt the 56 million people who voted on way- in ways other than on election day. And right now he's blocking the Fall People's Act that would ensure that those methods of voting would not be pushed away or voted away by extremist legislatures, like early voting and same day registration and extension of hours and 24 hour voting. And they said, the Poor People's Campaign, we need a foot washing and a rally. They said a lot of people in this state claim to believe in Jesus. And the politicians love to brag about how they put their hands on a Bible when they swear themselves into office. But they said they need to be reminded of what Jesus really said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, deliverance to the captive. And recover, preach good news to the poor. In, in Greek, that word is patokos, which means those who've been made poor because of economic exploitation. It was a direct challenge to the Caesars of Jesus's day. The people there said that people need to be reminded that Jesus's first sermon was about the poor and his last sermon was a warning to every nation to care for the poor, the hungry, the immigrant, and the least of these first, or otherwise that nation would be cast away. They also reminded us and wanted us to come because they were reminding people that on the Monday of Holy Week, In the first century, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the religious people who had become too entwined with the wicked political leaders of their day and who were robbing the people and who had forgotten that Jesus through that God, through the prophets of ancient Israel, said that the house of the Lord, that would be a house for all people. And then on Thursday, they, wanted to, they said people need to be reminded that Thursday, Monday, Thursday was a remembrance of the Passover when the Jewish people remembered that God stood against the oppression of Pharaoh and that people of faith are called to take on the Phariseistic ideas, even of our day. And as we were there on that Monday outside, we were reminded of something this nation needs to be reminded of, and that every person in power needs to hear. They need to be reminded of the words of the prophets, the words of Jesus, the words of the scriptures. They need to heed the morality of God that requires us to put caring for the poor and the least of these first. They need to be reminded that when we block and undermine policies that would uplift everybody, it is a modern day form of crucifixion. They need to be reminded that our goal in life, our moral goal should be to stop filling the pockets of the corporations and the wealthy and to stop treating corporations like people and people like things. And instead we should be washing the feet of poor and low wealth by passing policies that push back greed, the dirtiness of greed, the dirtiness of injustice. And we should be promoting grace and love and justice and doing justice to meet the needs of all of God's children. We come here tonight and we must be reminded that even before the pandemic, there were 140 million people poor and low wealth in America. 140 million people, nearly half of the nation. And during the pandemic, 8 million more people fell into poverty, while billionaires made nearly $2 trillion in America. Right now, there are 62 million people who are not earning a living wage. They make under $17 an hour. And only 39% of Americans can afford a $1,000 emergency. There's not a county in Texas, not a county in North Carolina, not a county in this country where you can work a minimum wage job of 725 and earn a basic to earn enough to afford a basic two bedroom apartment. And in Texas alone, there are more than nearly 13 million poor and low wealth people and over five million people who make less than a living wage, which makes Texas a the state with the highest number of and in, in, in raw numbers of poor people. The highest number of those not insured and the highest number making less than a living wage. Before COVID, seven people died from vaping and there was a White House level conference and congressional hearings. But 700 people were dying a day from poverty according to the Mailman School of Social Public Public Health in New York. 700 people were dying a day from poverty before COVID. 250,000 people a year were dying from poverty. Poverty that is a result of policy choices and not personal immorality. And hardly ever do we even hear poverty mentioned in our public discussions or in our political debates. And before COVID, there were 87 million people who were uninsured or underinsured. 87 million who were uninsured or uninsured. And America is still the only of the so-called wealthiest countries that ties health care to your job and not to your humanity. And millions lost their insurance during, during pandemic. We call them essential workers. We've changed their names from service workers to essential workers. But even in the pandemic, and even with all the thousands dead and the thousands sick, we still not passed a law in this country to guarantee people fundamental health care in the wealthiest nation on earth. Of the 25 wealthiest nations, we are the only nation that does not offer some form of universal health care, even before the pandemic. There were 4 million people that could get up every morning and buy unleaded gas and couldn't buy unleaded water in America. Even before the pandemic, we were spending 54 cents of every discretionary dollar on the war economy. And most of it not going to the veterans. Many, many veterans, as high as 20 to 30% of them our uh, veterans make less than a living wage, as m- many are on food stamps and other forms of government subsistence, while we spend only about 16 cents on education and infrastructure. And then in the midst of all of this, even before the pandemic, we had this form of theological malpractice called Christian nationalism, white evangelicalism, religious nationalism that suggests that when you talk about moral issues, about moral obligation, the only thing you need to be concerned about is being against gay people, being against people that get abortions, being for tax cuts, being for waving the flag, and being a member of a particular party whose first letter starts with aura and somehow you're fulfilling the great moral commands of God. And we know at best that's theological malpractice, and at worst is heresy. It's a metamorphosis of what was called in the 1800s slaveholder religion. When the slaveholders came up with a form of religiosity designed to make slavery okay. Even for those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And when we think about these realities, economic and otherwise, none of them have to exist. Jeffrey Sachs, that great moral economist, I call him one of the leading ones, a dear friend of mine. In fact, um, I'll be with him at the Vatican this coming fall. We've been invited to sit with the Pope and the Eastern Orthodox Pope and other bishops to deal with, look at this issue of poverty. You know, recently the Pope said when you look at the magical forms of trickle down economic and neoliberalism. Both of them have led us to a place where it's taken the world backwards in relationship to economics and the poor. But Jeffrey Sachs makes the point along with Joseph Sticklids and David Hamilton and many other economists that none of this has to exist, that poverty is a matter of policy choices. And that we don't have a, a, a scarcity of resources. We do not have a scarcity of ideas on how to address these issues. Many other countries are addressing them much better than us and we have more wealth than them. But what we have is a scarcity of moral consciousness. And you know, you would think that coming through a pandemic that killed millions of people around the world, uh, millions got sick, where poor and low wealth people, the essential workers that kept this country alive were the first to get sick, first to get infected, first to get sick, first go to hospital, first to die. A pandemic that has exposed the fissures of racism and poverty in a way that we can see it more clearly. You would think that our political leaders would shift and say, let's come together because the pandemic exposed that our levels of poverty and our levels of racism keep this country always vulnerable. We, they are matters of national security. And that, men, and some studies have shown that 60% of the people that died didn't have to die if we had not had the fissures of poverty, the fissures of racism, and an inadequate, inept response from the White House and the Congress. You would think that people would come together and say, and hear the wisdom of Jesus or the wisdom of the prophet in Isaiah 10, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey. But instead, after the physical insurrection we saw on January 6th, we are seeing an all out political insurrection in state capitals around this country by a ruthless minority that's intent on taking the country backwards rather than forward. And they are pushing gross forms of voter suppression through power that they receive through gerrymandering, unjust gerrymandering and and voter suppression. And it's not just towards black people because voter suppression is not just a race issue. The truth of the matter is voter suppression number one is a theological issue because in this country, we only give the right to vote to people born or natural 18 years old, born or naturalized in these United States. We don't give the right to vote to puppet puppets and parakeets and and, and, and we don't do that animals and pets only to people. And so whenever you suppress the vote, whenever you try to block someone from voting, you are trying to act like God. God even grants us the right to vote. The Bible says, choose you this day. In Hebrew, the word for vote and voice is the same word, coil. So when you see the voice of God, it's the same word that can say the vote of God. Our voice is our vote. Our vote is our voice. When you try to take away from people the ability to choose, that is in fact a form of theological overstep. But the issue of suppression is also about the redistribution of wealth. It's about who controls the livers of power, who controls the great vaults of this nation, which Dr. King said long years ago, we refuse to believe are bankrupt. And voter suppression hurts everybody. There are over 400 bills now in some 20 states and we need to examine in this moment something dr king told us let me see if i can can can, can muse his spirit for a minute the end of the Selma to montgomery march dr king said this the threat of the free ex- exercise of the ballot by the negro and white masses alike resulted in the establishment of a segregated society they segregated southern money from poor whites they segregated southern moors from rich whites. They segregated Southern churches from Christianity. They segregated Southern minds from honest thinking and they segregated the Negro from everything. That's what happened when the Negro and white masses of the South threatened to unite and build a great society that would change the economic architecture of the country. In 1965, the end of the summer of the Montgomery March, Dr. King said, what really is behind voter suppression is the fear of the masses of people, poor and low wealth, black and white and now Latino and Asian and Native, coming together and restructuring the economic architecture of the nation. Here we are, and and, and since the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in the summer of 2013, it's been eight years, y'all, it's been eight years, we actually have less voting rights today when it comes to the Voting Rights Act than we had 56 years ago. Think about that a minute. We have less voting rights today right now than we had 56 years ago when you look at it through the lens of the Voting Rights Act. And since today, it's not the big lie of Trump alone since 2013, before Trump was even thought of as a candidate. In fact, that part of what helped him win was voter suppression because he won, for instance, Wisconsin about 20,000 votes, but Ari Ari Berman found out 250,000 votes were suppressed in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. But since 2013, there has been an assault on voting rights in this country. Let me give you some numbers. Since 2013, before this year, 22 states passed voter suppression laws since 2010. And those states and those laws impacted the election of 44 senators. 50 percent of the United States House of Representatives. Ever since the Supreme Court gutted Section five of the Voting Rights Act. And, and, and think about it, it's been filibustered for eight years, filibustered. We refused to act on it. And, and Strom Thurmond, who was from South Carolina, a devout racist, only filibustered the Civil Rights Act of 57 for 24 hours. But the Congress under McConnell has filibustered fixing the Voting Rights Act for eight years, for eight years. And every state from Maryland to Texas, the Old South or the Southwest, or what Kevin Phillips, who worked for Richard Nixon when they developed the Southern strategy called the, the South and the Sun Belt, if you look at those states from Maryland to Texas, that's 193 electoral college votes. And over 30% of the United States House of Representatives and over 26 members of the United States Senate. And when you look at this, you then begin to understand that if you suppress the vote, you can lock up these states. You can almost guarantee where 193 electoral votes are going, which means you only need 77 electoral votes from the other 35 states to win the presidency but what you should also know about these states is that they're in these same states that are suppressing the vote they call them red states but are not really red states they're unorganized and suppressive states one third of all poor people live in those states but the states that have the most extremists in their legislatures One third of all poor people live in those states. One third of all poor white people in those states. All of those states have blocked living wages. All of those states have denied expanding health care. All of those states support more and more money for the war economy and less money for infrastructure, particularly in poor and low wealth communities. And these are the same states where so-called white evangelicals and religious nationalists claim to have such a following. Interesting. Interesting. That the same states where you have the greatest following of theological malpractice are the same states that are blocking healthcare and living wages. And my my father, my, my father used to say, if, if Jesus did anything, he healed people. If he did anything, he gave people free healthcare and never charged them a copay. And yet, so many people are so loud about what Jesus said, so little about and so say so little about what Jesus says so much about. And in these same states, if a small percentage of poor and low wealth people were organized around an agenda, that we did a study with Columbia University and we found out that in 15 states, if poor and low wealth people were not, their votes weren't suppressed, and if politicians dared to talk about the moral issue of poverty and encouraged them and invited them and inspired them in 15 states, if poor and low wealth people just voted between 1% and 27%, they could determine who sits in the presidency, who sits in the Senate, who sits in the governorship. how. In Michigan, it's 1%. North Carolina, it's 19%. In Florida, it's 4% of poor and low wealth people. In Georgia, 7%. In Texas, it's around 24%. Because in the last 2016 presidential election, the presidential person won by 800,000 votes. But in there were 2.7 million poor and low wealth people that didn't vote. And when we did our study, we asked poor and low wealth people, why is it that you don't vote, regardless of their color, whether they're in Appalachia or, 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 or the Deep South? And they all said, first and foremost, nobody talks about us. We don't hear our name. We don't hear our conditions from the mouth of the politicians or the preachers so often. Hmm. And that's why you got to understand the other side of voter suppression. It it may have its roots in racism, but it's not just about race. It hurts poor white people and low-income white people and the disabled and women. It allows the greedy, like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, that is actually supporting, blocking the For the People Act. The United States Chamber of Commerce is against the For the People Act. Imagine that because they want to control the politicians who control the livers of power, who control the faults of the country, who control the tax policies. And the same people that blocked the vote also refused to address ecological devastation. They would rather give more money to the greedy and tax cuts to the wealthy than deal with the very destruction of the country, the, the climate. They refuse to expand health care. They refuse to expand living wages. The greatest denial of health care and living wages and fully funding public education and union rights is also where we see the greatest attacks on the LGBT community and the immigrant community. Is also the place where we see the greatest density in our prisons and the greatest denial of ecological devastation is where we see the greatest surgical and racist, class-based voter suppression. And None of this has to be allowed. Right now, we could stop it all in the states, but we need the For the People's Act. We need federal protection, just like they fought for in 1965 and in 1868 and 1877. We need federal protection. The For the People's Act, the Voting Rights Act, ending the filibuster. But even some Democrats, because they're so tied into the US Chamber of Commerce, into dark money, they want to block filibustering. Now, interestingly, the filibuster was broken for 51 people to vote for Supreme Court seats. We put people in the Supreme Court for life on 51 votes, but we won't save the democracy with 51 votes. Hmm. We're headed toward, if we're not already there, a civil oligarchy. And the next step from a civil oligarchy is autocracy. The filibuster is non-constitutional. And the claim that it's necessary and keeps the Congress from becoming dysfunctional, I totally I disagree. I love the president. I, I, I preached his inaugural sermon, challenged him to repair the breaches, But to say that the filibuster keeps the Congress from becoming dysfunctional, whether he says it or McConnell says it or Manchin says it or Sinema says it or anybody says it, is actually morally indefensible, constitutionally inconsistent, historically inaccurate, politically insidious, and economically insane. Even Jesus said, woe unto those who tithe even the tea leaves, but they leave undone the weightier matters of the law, which is justice, and to leave something undone is to filibuster it, to not act on it. As I said, the US Chamber of Commerce and and, and many of the greedy elite, they are the ones who want the filibuster so that they can support certain candidates so that they can block a progressive agenda so that they can guarantee the kind of public policy, whether it be trickle down, or neoliberalism from the middle up that benefits their bottom line. Remember, billionaires made $2 trillion in the midst of this pandemic while others were dying. And the reason we should know something about this filibuster, because if you're going to talk about our moral obligation, part of it has to be challenging this filibuster because every piece of anti slavery legislation was filibustered. But You should also know the filibuster is not about just race either. Because, for instance, the Taft-Hartley Right to Work Act was filibustered. In 1974, there was a five year effort to pass an independent consumer protection agency. And it was filibustered. In 1972, Southern senators filibustered the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. For months, they blocked the commission that would deal with job discrimination. In 2014, a Republican filibuster successfully barred the Protect Women's Health from Corporate Interference Act which was designed and intended to remedy the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that employers could refuse to include contraceptives for women in their insurance plan. The filibuster has been used time and time again. The filibuster was used to block the anti-lynching laws, which we still have not passed an anti-lynching law in America. Filibuster was used to block every piece of civil rights legislation until it was weakened. There's no place in history where the filibuster actually made things better. It was all, for the most part, it was used to weaken laws and undermine life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now the filibuster is blocking voting rights. And together, the filibuster, voter suppression, and blocking living wages, they are not just about racism but it's ultimately about shutting up people, poor and low wealth people, and any people who believe in justice. And it is a moral disgrace. It's always been used to undermine What's being done with the filibuster today is what Dr. King called interposition and nullification. Remember when he was at the March on Washington and he said a governor whose lips are dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. The filibuster today is doing what George Wallace did in the 1960s. And any politician, Democrat or Republican, who's holding on to the filibuster is at best a modern day engaging in modern day racism, classism and elitism. 55% of poor, low wealth Americans voted for Biden Harris, and they can't even get a vote on a living wage. To allow an unconstitutional rule to be used by a minority to engage in blocking voting rights and living wages and health care and union rights and immigration reform is sin. It's sinful. It's a damnable form of sin. And so America, you ask the question, what is our obligation? America's got to make a decision. There's two decisions that America's got to make. One, America has got to decide whether or not it's going to allow any more death. You know, we talk a lot about death when somebody's killed by a racist cop. But when you look at the data, people die from the lack of health care. They die from the lack of living wages. They die from poverty. And too often in our history in America, we've been too accepting of death. People died because of slavery, died because of Jim Crow. People died when the agrarian culture and the domestic culture was left out of the Social Security Act. 50% of white women couldn't qualify for Social Security when it was first passed, and many black people couldn't, and and it wasn't until 1954 that many of them were included. With public policy, bad public policy kills, the king called it policy murder, and America has got to decide that death is no longer an option. Whether it's the kind of death that we see on a camera or a body cam that moves us or a film like with George Floyd or whether it's the kind of death we never see. But it's in the numbers. All bad regressive public policy. Has a DM on the DL a death measurement on the down low. And we've got to decide that's our moral obligation whether we're going to be about life and life more abundantly or whether we're going to allow policies that actually call people to death. One of the one of the ladies in the Poor People's Campaign, her name is Callie, talks about how her daughter died right beside her in her arm because she needed Medicaid expansion, but Alabama didn't expand Medicaid. And now she's organizing black and white women and other women whose children literally die, not because God called them home, not because it was their time to die but because the governor refused to sign Medicaid expansion. And the legislature said no to life. But there's a second thing we've got to decide. We've got to decide and make a decision. Are we going to go backwards or are we going to have a third Reconstruction? You know, America never has fundamentally shifted without Reconstruction. There's a first Reconstruction right after the Civil War, that fundamentally changed things and then we went backwards it was killed it was murdered it was assassinated it was hung and then there was a second reconstruction in the civil rights 1954 to 1968 and then that that was undermined by the southern strategy by the killing of our leaders even the killing of a president and the question is are we going to have a third reconstruction here's 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 the decision we wrote a bill uh, the Poor People's Campaign, and picked up by Congress, it gives a vision of the kind of resolve we have to have. It's called building, lifting America from the bottom up, ending poverty and low wealth from the bottom up. A third reconstruction, ending poverty and low wealth from the bottom up. And here, here are the things we've got to consider around um, what is our moral obligation in this moment. I'm going to take you through it, and I'll take questions. There are over 140 million people who are poor and low wealth, just one emergency away from economic ruins. And whereas the injustice of poverty and low wealth is deeply entwined with the injustices of systemic racism, the denial of health care, ecological devastation, militarism, and a distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism. And whereas there are devastating consequences, including 250,000 people that die every year due to poverty. And whereas even before the pandemic and before 8 million more people fell into poverty, there were 140 million people who were poor and low wealth, 52% of our children. 39 million people, 45% of our women, 74 million, 60% of black people, 24 million, 64% of Latino, 38 million, 40% of Asians and Pacific Islanders, 8 million, 59% of native and indigenous people, 2 million, 33% of white people, 66 million. And whereas 140 million live in every region of the nation, 50 million in the South, 50 million in the South. 8.6 million, excuse me, 40 million in Appalachia. In Appalachia, 8.6 million in New York alone. 40 million in the southwest border states like Arizona, Texas, Utah, California, Colorado. 20 million poor, low wealth people in California alone, 20 million in the Midwest, deindustrialized industrialized states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and others, 11 million in the Northeast, 7 million in the Northwest, Alaska, Idaho, Washington, 7 million in the Great Plains, 700,000 in Hawaii, 300,000 in Washington, DC. And whereas systemic racism takes the form of laws and policies that target people of color, especially poor people of color to create and deepen the inequities whereas we saw this even in the way COVID 19 impacted poor communities of all races and poor communities of color and whereas since 2010 at least 25 states have passed new voter restrictions imposing racist and class-based gerrymandering and whereas nearly 50 million people are working for low wages including 40% of black and Latino workers, and approximately 30% of white workers, and 59% of women work at low wages in the 21st century, and whereas more than 25 million workers have been directly hurt by the economic impacts of the pandemic, and whereas women carry a disproportionate share of unpaid care work, which would total $1.5 trillion At the current minimum wage, and whereas there are 30 to 40 million people at risk of homelessness, and an estimated 25 to 50 million people facing food insecurity in America today, and whereas 60 million adults with disabilities in the country, 60 million adults with disabilities in the country, and 25% are living below the poverty line, and 10% are uninsured, and 7 million students have disabilities, are enrolled in our public schools, and whereas the official poverty measurement is 50 years old and inadequate and does not account for the cost of living, including childcare, health insurance, transportation, and whereas because of that, the way we fund our programs is desperately low because we refuse to count all of the poor. And whereas an expansion of oil and fossil fuel infrastructure has led to 50,000 significant oil and gas leaks and 2,400, excuse me, 5,000 significant and 2,400 oil spills in the United States waters and 1,100 coal ash ponds of all, every one of them is disproportionately in approximation to poor low wealth communities. And whereas native and indigenous reservations cover just 2% of the United States, the ancestral and the sacred lands and lands, but they're at risk being devastated by extraction and pollution and mining and stealing, where there's a crisis of water and job on those reservations. Whereas tens of millions of Americans cannot afford access to clean water, and 44 million people are living with water systems that violate the Safe Drinking Water Act, and approximately 540,000 households lack access to complete plumbing. And whereas 119 rural hospitals have been closed in 41 states since 2010, many of them because we refuse to expand even Medicaid, And whereas the United States has the worst ranking of public health outcomes among our peer country, including the lowest life expectancy and the highest infant and maternity mortality rate, even though we spend more than twice the amount per capita on health expenditures. And whereas rather than addressing these pressing conditions impact, we tend to spend 54 cents of every federal discretionary dollar to the Pentagon and war. And whereas the United States is home to less than 5% of the world's population, but accounts for 20% of the world's incarcerated people, most of whom are poor, women, people of color, 74% of those in jail have never been convicted of a crime. But they're too poor to be free before trial. And whereas there have been over 1,000 police killings every year since 2013 with black, native and indigenous people more likely to be killed by the police and 98 percent of police killings since 2013 have not resulted in a criminal charge. And whereas billionaires have added more than two, one or three trillion dollars to their collective wealth from March of 2020 to February 2021. And it's grown even beyond that. And whereas we lose a trillion dollars every year because of child poverty and 1.9 trillion of government revenue because of we lower the tax rates on corporations and whereas 6.4 trillion dollars has been lost in endless wars over the past two decades and whereas the cost of this pandemic are estimated to be at least 16 trillion dollars and whereas we need 10 trillion dollars really over the next 10 years in infrastructure to ensure that poor and low wealth communities are lifted. We've got to decide if there is a therefore to that whereas. If we're going to be about deep morality and be about love and be about justice and be about life and the pursuit of happiness, if we're going to be serious about promoting the general welfare and providing for the common defense, then the question is, do we have the resolve? Do we have the moral resolve? Do we have the moral resolve to update the positive poverty measure and to get a true picture of poverty so we can deal with it? Do we have the resolve to enact living wages and protect the right to join and form unions? Do we have the resolve to provide universal single payer health care and guarantee that everybody has a right to housing, water, equitable, diverse public education? Do we have the resolve to relieve debts that cannot be paid, including student debts and housing debt and medical debt? Do we have the resolve to expand and protect our voting rights and save our democracy? Do we have the resolve to ensure the rights of indigenous people and native people and tribal nations? Do we have the resolve to establish national commission of truth and racial justice and transformation and on reparations? Do we have the resolve to enact comprehensive and just immigration reform that ensures access to legal documentation? and ends detentions and deportations and militarism of our borders and family separation? Do we have the resolve to embrace a climate agenda that prioritizes the poor and those hit first and worst by climate disaster? Do we have the resolve to demilitarize our foreign policy our borders and policing, and do we have the resolve, resolve to redirect military spending, unnecessary military spending, to implement fair taxes and to break free from decades of trickle-down economics and neoliberalism and be willing to spend, even deficit spend, for social uplift, knowing as Joseph Stickley is the great Nobel Peace Prize said, if we see it not as deficit, but as investment, it will come back to us tenfold. If we invest in a living wage, it will come back to us and lift us all. Do we have the resolve? That's the moral obligation. It's not about whether you're communist or socialist. It's about whether you, we are going to be decent human beings. It's about whether or not we're going to live into our deepest religious values about whether we're going to truly believe what we say on paper about life living in the pursuit of happiness and the establishment of justice and ensuring domestic tranquility and providing for the common defense and promoting the general welfare and ensuring equal protection under the law and ensuring that nobody can deny or abridge the right to vote. It's about whether that's those are just words or those things are a roadmap that should guide us in our public policy. I pray that in this moment of great hurt and pain, that we'll do what Frederick Douglass did in 1852. I've been sitting with him as I've been trying to imitate one of my mentors from history, Howard Thurman, who was a mystic. And so in the midst of the pandemic, rather than just sitting alone, I would sit and imagine Frederick Douglass and read his words and then sit back in deep thought and just think about him. And over and over again, what's been ringing in my spirit, that I can almost hear him in 1852 when the Dred Scott decision was decided. And it said a black man had no rights that a white man ever had to pay attention to. And people came to Frederick Douglass and said it was over. The hope of abolition was over. The hope of ending slavery was over. And he was asked to speak at an abolition conference in in, in, in May of that year after that March decision. And Frederick Douglass said it's bad. Act is terrible the fact is monstrous and it looks like everything is against us but then he said but there's another side that the Supreme court of man does not override the Supreme court of God and he said and I and I know this that every attempt to ally and to end and to stop the cause of abolition the just cause of freedom. Only serve to embolden and intensify our agitation. I pray in the Poor People's Campaign, we pray that the more people see the faces that are, and the pain that's caused by systemic racism and systemic poverty and ecological devastation, denial of healthcare, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of, of, of religious nationalism, we won't shrink back, but we'll stand up and that it will embolden and intensify our agitation to never be satisfied until all of those that have been rejected by all of the rejecting systems of this world can find a way to come together. And if not all of us a strong enough remnant to say to this nation, we will not settle for anything less than one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. We believe that's what God would desire. That's what grace, love, and mercy demand. And we intend to be instruments of that change until our own change comes. But the last thing we intend to do is sit down and do nothing. We will keep in front of America you must make a choice. Our moral descent and our moral vision that doesn't just crush the darkness, but presents a way forward, that is our moral obligation. Always has been and always will be. And I pray that each of us will accept the mantle and wear it until we are no longer here somebody we were talking one day about this pandemic and we began to wrestle with why are we still alive i've been struggling with that i've had one family that had 12 members to die one family in the poor people's campaign a young lady 18 had 30 members of family to die within a 50 mile radius so why is william barber still here i'm not better than the people that died. Surely I've been around COVID. I have an immune deficiency. I couldn't pay my way out of this. And one day sitting with that question deeply and wrestling with it, my brother died young. Why why am I still here? And it dawned on me through the spirit, that's the wrong answer, because you can never answer that question. Why are you still here? Unless you're arrogant enough to think you're better than someone. The question is not, why are we still here? The question is, what are we gonna do with our still being here? Because the truth of the matter is, what COVID has taught us is that when you don't breathe, you don't lie, when when you can't breathe, you don't live. And medical science teaches us, if any of us, without air for 10 minutes, six minutes, some people, that's it, even if you live with so much brain damage. And none of us know whether we got six minutes left or six hours, or six days, or six weeks, six months, or six years, but maybe that's not the question. How long? Maybe the larger question is, what do we do with the time we have? And I would suggest humbly that it is a waste of precious breath and a waste of precious time to be mean and unjust and hateful and discriminatory and racist, and to be a person that looks down on the poor. That the only good use of the breath we have is to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before God, to be on the side of moral resurrection, moral revolution, and moral reconstruction, trying to turn the things that are wrong right And if we use our breath for that, even if we don't accomplish it all in our living, we leave a legacy for someone else to pick up. And at the end of the day, our living will not have been in vain. God bless you and thank you for this gracious opportunity to share with you tonight.
1: Thank you so much, Reverend Dr. Barber. It is just a wonderful moment to be with you, and we're grateful for your voice, and for your leadership, and for your vision. We do have time for some questions, and I'm really glad, as you know, tonight's program is part of a series of programs that the Rothko Chapel will be presenting on civil and human rights. How do you understand rights? When you hear comments like, undocumented people don't have rights, or people incarcerated don't have the right to vote, or people who are poor don't have rights, how do you respond? How does the Poor People's Campaign address or consider the concept of rights?
3: Well, you know, that those kinds of comments have deep seeds and deeper roots. We come from a, we come, we're in a nation where people's freedom had to be voted on, which is crazy if you really think about it. (laughs) Something that you get from God had to be voted on in the 13th Amendment in 1860, uh, 1865, yeah, December 6, 1865. And, you know, we come from a nation that some people spent a lot of time saying who didn't matter. You know, in the original Constitution, it said, white poor white men, men didn't matter. They didn't have land. Women couldn't vote. Women didn't have rights. Native people who we stole from didn't have rights. Uh, slavery was undergird by some, by, by five things, um, <clears throat> at least five things. Evil economics, that the end justifies the means as long as it makes money. Bad biology, that some people are different biologically. You can see it based on skin color. Sick sociology that based on that biological difference, people should be separate and some should be high and some should be low. Uh, Political pathology where every rule you make politically has to first consider how do you keep these people low? How do you keep them down? Uh, And certainly, how do you keep these people from organizing with other poor people, i.e. white people, so forth, so on. And then um, uh, uh, heretical ontology. Which is the notion that God intended it this way. When someone says somebody else doesn't say that that doesn't doesn't have a right, to me they are overstepping all kinds of bounds. But most of all, the theological bound is an attempt to play God. Because the Bible actually says, woe unto those who rob the poor of their rights. You know, all through the scriptures, the poor had rights in the scriptures, the wealthy were even told not to take everything out of the field because the poor had right to those. Because the field itself doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when we talk about rights, we say everybody has a right to live. That's a song we sing, everybody has a right to live. And so that anything that is producing death, whether it's the death of a body, the death of dreams, the death of possibility, the death of freedom. Then it is anti uh, uh, the rights that we have. That's why systemic racism is wrong because it kills, and everybody has a right to live. That's why you know, deny poverty is so wrong because it kills, it destroys in so many ways, and everybody has a right to live. That's why ecological devastation, denial of health care, commitment to war, a war economy are so wrong. They are spirals downward. That's why any kind of religiosity that suggests if you're gay, you don't have a right. If you're trans, you don't have a right. You only have a right if you're straight. That would kind of, all of those things are contrary to the theological sense that everybody has a right to live. As, as Paul Tillich says, We and, and in that we have to fight for the courage to be. We have to fight for courage to be and resist anything that tries to supplement, uh, subvert, uh, or destroy the very right to live because that right, nobody, nobody gave me life but the creator. And anything that is destructive to the creation to, in my mind, and I feel like people in in the Pilking campaign is contrary to who we are called to be. Uh, so that's why we need a real reconstruction because health care ought to be a right. You know, public education right now in America is not a right in our constitution and it should be. It should be a right. A living wage should be a right. You can't promote the general welfare if people can't even make a living wage. So those things should be a right. And then lastly, I'm so tired of people calling for undocumented immigrants, especially in a place like Texas, because when when people come from Mexico to Texas, they're coming home. They folk don't remember Texas was Mexico. The people that left Mexico because they wanted to keep their slaves because Mexico outlawed slavery and the Texans then Bowie and all of them wanted to keep their slaves. So that's why we have to have critical race theory. I don't you can call it what you want to call it. But what I call it is got to have a truthful understanding of the realities and how we got here.
1: Thank you. That's very helpful. And, and yes, yes, yes. I imagine I'm not alone in feeling inspired and challenged. And I'm wondering what you, su- what you would suggest as perhaps a first action step, maybe for someone who's new to this movement, who's new to these ideas, who absolutely believes there's a moral obligation but isn't sure what to do. What would you suggest?
3: I want them to go to thepoorpeoplescampaign.org and first read and study all of the documents. I want you to read the document there that's entitled uh, The Souls of Poor Folk, Auditing America 50 Years After the Poor People Campaign. I want you to read the Third Reconstruction, in, uh, 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 ending poverty uh, and low wealth from the bottom up. I want you to read the moral budget. I want you to take a look at the videos and hear the hundreds of testimonies on that site. I want you to go to Repairs of the Breach and look at the 14 steps uh, for organizing and building a moral fusion coalition. I would love for you to join the Poor People's Campaign and then right there in Texas, join us next week in uh, the, 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 the four days from Georgetown to Austin and then on Austin, of uh, July 31st. And listen, not to people talking for people, but hear impacted people who are going to be declaring has impacted people of every race, creed and color. Uh, uh, Why we have to end the filibuster, why we have to pass the 40 People's Act, why we have to pass uh, the Voting Rights Act, why we need to pass $15 minimum wage now. Uh, And then and I also want to invite you to go to 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 join us in in Washington, D.C. on July 18th, 2022. Help us mobilize poor and low wealth people all over this country. Get in the mix. You know, some of this stuff you have to pick up through osmosis. That's how I did. My father said, you got to get in it to be in, it. you know, go around, be around people that are different. Listen to their stories uh, 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 and and watch the kind of engagement. People ask me, well, how do you keep hope? My hope comes from the people who have every reason to quit, but they're still fighting. You know, my hope comes from my white brothers and sisters that I've met up in Eastern Kentucky and Appalachian, Tennessee. Who have oftentimes been forgotten and, and, but they are fighting and they asked me, they, they came up with a song in the 1920s, which side are you on? And when I go up there with people like that, they tell me, say, remember, you know, if nothing more, we get hope from fighting for what's right. And so I get hope from people who are, who, who, who are in the midst of struggle. And yet they do struggle. It is the kind of hope that, um, uh, 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 I think his name was Mokman, he was a theologian. He said, it's the hope that comes when it's, when faith decides it can't accept what is anymore. And so it begins to work to change to, to what ought to be. And it's in that process that hope actually comes. It is the hope of resistance and the hope of not accepting the injustice. So I wanna invite you in, come on in the movement. There's a place for you, come on in.
1: Great. And that, you know, that ties in all of your words about hope and joining in here in Harris County in Houston, Texas. We made some wonderful changes to the way voting was happen- happening. For example, people were able to vote 24 hours so that those who couldn't wow. leave their job could come and vote. And now we're seeing our hard work um, being dissolved. Devisitory. Yeah, and yeah. You, you know you mentioned west virginia and mentioned these other places around the country how do we how do we keep we make progress right forward together not one step back how do we keep from getting pushed back it's what do we do
3: yeah well you know in this world the history of america is you take steps forward and then steps back and you know i said we had a reconstruction that lasted from 1865 but by 1898, it had been undone by, by for number, in a number of ways, politically and through violence. And then you have another reconstruction, 54, 68. We have to remember something though. Every generation has its Edmund Pettus Bridge. Let's, let's go ahead and accept that. Every generation has its battle. Every generation has its fight. And once we accept that, that's how we keep from being pushed back. When we accept that nothing is ever fully permanent in a society where people have the choice to go backwards nothing is fully permanent in a society where you have a democracy where people can vote and different people can be elected nancy Pelosi often quotes that there was a founding member a person in the country that said we have a democracy if we can keep it well you know we have to even biblically it's amazing to me that one of the great stories is even after they got in the promised land they had to fight jericho wasn't outside the promised land it was in the promised land right the philistines and others were in the promised land not outside of the promised land so number one we have to realize there's no need to be upset that you and i have to fight that's our legacy we've got to fight to hold on to what we had and to go further because even what was won is not all they won certain things for instance the 1965 voting rights act but it didn't win everything secondly Secondly, we have to have massive – in times like these, we need massive uh, movements in the street. We need meaningful legislation. We need meaningful litigation. And we need mass voter turnout. And those four things have to be at all times. So right now, we need to be in the street. That's why we're coming to Texas. We need a massive number of folk in the street next week and to say to the federal government, you've got to act. That We, we have to have – these federal protections. That's why the law is in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 says the Congress can change federal laws in order to protect those elections. The 15th Amendment says nobody can abridge or deny the right to vote. The 14th Amendment says we must ensure people equal protection under the law. So how do we keep from going back? We must push what is said on paper to be actual what's in reality. And you're right, 56 million people voted in ways not normal, like on a normal election day. Well, we that means those people and 56 million more, You I've know, got to fight now for what we had. If you went to the ballot box, you ought to go in the street. If you went to the ballot box, we ought to be calling all of our Congress people. You do not have an election and then sit back. You have to have an election and then keep on pushing, keep on pushing and recognize that is our obligation. It is it is it, 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 it's, it's from one generation to the next. We not, we. it's like breathing. You do not stop breathing unless you want to die. <laughs> you do not stop breathing. So if you don't, and if you stop breathing, I guarantee if you standing up, you're gonna fall backwards. More than like you're just gonna fall out. So the same is true. You, you, if you don't wanna fall backwards, you gotta keep pushing, you gotta keep standing. You gotta keep, we should actually, maybe we should see this moment that folk are trying to push things back as the dying, the the dying, uh, uh, the lost, the dying hope of a lost cause. You know, in South Africa, they used to say when apartheid was about to die and they got worse and worse, they said, uh, "This is what we're seeing is the last throes, the last breath." So maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe they're afraid of all of us and all of us, you know, voting together. And if we stand up in this moment, we might even redeem some of them in love and bring them over. But more importantly, could maybe I have a friend that says there are moments in life you have to decide whether you're going to see it as a womb or a tomb. If you see it as a tomb, you just lay down and die. If you see it as a womb, you keep pushing, but both of them cause pain. The tomb causes pain and the womb causes pain, but you have to decide in the moment, which one is going to be, I choose to see this moment as a womb. As a time where the overstep and the arrogance and the meanness of the extremists is not going to cause people to stand down, it's going to make people stand up. And if we stand up right, it'll make push the president to stand up right. We stand up right, it'll push mansion cinema anybody because ultimately, at the end of the day, they're politicians. And what we cannot do in this moment is stand back if we don't want to fall back.
1: Thank you. Yes. So, you know, I've heard you say so many times how important local leadership is, especially in engaging in nonviolent direct action. Why is local leadership so important? What should people know about local leadership here in Houston, here in Texas?
3: Yeah. Indigenous leadership. That's why I did. For instance, next week, I didn't come to Texas and say what folk ought to do. They called from Texas. The indigenous people, they know the ground game. They know what's going on. And when we get to Austin, it's not going to be people flying into Texas speaking. For te- it's going to be Texans. It's not even going to be elected leaders speaking. It's going to be impacted people because history tells me that change in this country always came from Montgomery up, from Birmingham up, from Houston up, from from Selma up. It never came from D.C. down. It always came from the people up. A tree grows from the roots up. The roots up, and that's the same way with movement. What part of the problem? Sometimes when people try to build a movement, they do one first mistake is they don't build a movement; they build a moment that they just say we're gonna have one rally, or we're gonna do something one day, and that's not a movement. Secondly, too often what happens is we don't put big enough face on the issue. I tell that to progressives and and, and others. Too often we know the numbers, but we don't know the stories. We don't put a face on the issues. So you heard the numbers I talked about tonight, but in the movement in the streets, we put a face on it. We put a face on it, and ultimately, uh, if you look at the, the the numbers, you know, as I said, in Texas, president in twenty sixteen won by eight hundred thousand votes. Over two million poor and low wealth people didn't vote that were eligible to vote. That's power. If you look at the people rejected because of racism, rejected because of their sexuality, rejected because of their gender, rejected because of their class and put all those folk together, you actually have more people than you have of those who are extremists. But you can't build that in a macro way. you got to build it in a micro way, which means you always have to go down to the base and build up. You go to the base and you build up. Up, every major social movement comes from the ground up.
1: Our final question, and um, you've you've touched on it some already. Here at the Rothko Chapel, we talk about sustaining the spirit through the social justice movements, and I'm wondering how you personally, as a minister, an activist, an advocate, working on so many different levels, doing this good work, this movement work that you've just been talking about. How, how do you do it? How do you keep the faith? How do you keep the vision? And what advice would you give to others, especially young activists, as they're beginning this justice work?
3: Well, I would say to them, try along with your working in the movement uh, to build a deep sense of spirituality. I'm not gonna tell you which way. Um, I was taught that as a Christian, for instance, there were three things we needed to have. We needed to have holiness, and that doesn't mean thinking we're better than other folk. That means a sense of being set apart, uh, not to participate in the evils of the world. Um, Number two, we needed to have uh, um, worship and praise. That means a place of re-energizing and a sense of the holy and a sense of joy. But the third one was we needed to have prophetic social consciousness. And that was an understanding that life was supposed to be about justice, and that any true spiritual experience that did not create a quarrel with the worlds of injustice was deeply questionable. But you need all three of them, not just one of them. Uh, I I know from my own life life if you get out here and you face these systems without a community that you can be revived in, without wisdom beyond your wisdom. Uh, for me, without a sense of the divine, these systems are ruthless and destructive. And at your best, even when you have those things, your spirit's going to get broken. Sometimes you're going to get crucified. Sometimes you're going to cry. Sometimes I've done a lot of it. Um, when you move, I don't move because I'm not fearful. Courage is not the absence of fear. Um, you know, the first time I came to Texas, uh, to go down to El Paso to organize Latino and white and black people, I got a note. If you come to Texas, I'm gonna make sure you're drowning your own blood. Um, that was not easy to handle. I've had a number that I don't talk about them often. Uh, you know, when we were fighting in North Carolina, I was told you're in the dead pool. You'll be dead by Christmas. What gets me through those moments is, first of all, what I told you about Howard Thurman and mimicking him, kind of being a mystic and sitting down with people who faced so much more in the past than I have, And you gain, you, you garner from their strength. You almost, I almost can hear them saying, still fight on, you know, if, if, if Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and William Lord Garrison and people like that, and um, uh, 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 so many others, mother Jones uh, who was a white woman to fight, if they could fight considering what they fought, Uh, you, you, you build from them. Then you have places where you can own your fears and own your struggles. Uh, and then sometimes you just have to, my grandma say, go on on. You, she used to say, boy, just go on on. You'll get some joy as you're going. In other words, you have to go. It's kind of like the night, you know, sometimes Dr. King would have to get his joy back while he was speaking or while he was preaching. Uh, uh, sometimes you have to be in the midst of the struggle to overcome the struggle. It's not some place outside of it, Tom. Um, uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, when I'm at my worst and hurting, sometimes it becomes a necessity for me to preach. So for young people and for older people, find that deep place of spirituality, have a community go be there be, go, stay in the community of struggle and and and, and don't be ashamed to be owned own how you feel sometimes then sometimes no you can take a break Jesus took a break Moses took a break you know sometimes you got to go to the mountain to come back to the valley uh, you know th- those things are real but in community community is so critical so critical, you know. You know, the song says uh, um, it, uh, it says um uh, it's a song that we used to sing said, I got a feeling everything gonna be all right. But then the next part of it says, the Holy Ghost done told me everything gonna be all right. Then it says Rosa told me it's gonna be all right. Then it says Martin told me. And it's almost as like the lyricist is going through history and grabbing strength from the strength of other people's struggles, right? And so we have to do that as well. Um, but there are going to be days when your spirit is troubled. This is not easy work. The systems of injustice are real. Uh, you know, we are in a society that has killed those who loved it the most. That's, and you, and you have to factor that in. If you're really going to deal with this, you have, you, 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 if you come into this work, and you just want to do it because it's happy work and because you want to help somebody and you don't factor in that it's costly. It's costly. And you count up that cost, you know, then then you will get hit harder. But if you count up the cost when the cost comes and you got to pay to pay the check, it's not that it doesn't hurt, but it hurts a little less because you factored that in on the front end you factored it in. And if you factor in the cost, you won't try to walk alone. This is not about solo work. This is about community work. And for me, it's not only about community with people, but it's about communion with God. You know, there's a great song in our tradition that says, "I, I, I, I it says, sometimes I get disturbed, discouraged, and seem like all my works in vain, but then the Holy Spirit comes and revives my soul again. And it says, I feel, I I felt sin, I've seen the lightning flash and I felt the thunder roll and I see sin's breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still fight on because he promised me he'd never leave me alone. And for me, my eschatology is how I deal with the existential realities. I do believe that there is someone who's not only with us, but above us, who hears our deepest cry and will speak to us in ways in our, in our, in our, in our hurtful moments, you know, Martin Luther King, as I closed, said he was sitting at his table in Montgomery. They had bombed his house, almost blew up his wife and his baby. And he sat there, he said, over half a cup of coffee and said, I don't want to do this, God. Uh, you know, get me out of here. I, I, I didn't want to come here but five years and pastor, go back to uh, Atlanta and be a professor at Morehouse. And he said it was that that moment when he was honest real honest about wanting to quit that he heard a voice say martin stand up for justice stand up for what's right and i'll be with you now the voice didn't tell him you might not get you won't get killed because it is very possible doing this work you will get hurt i hope that's not for anybody but you have to factor that in too but then you have to also develop i'd rather die for love than to live in hate. They live in, I'd rather die one way than to waste my life in meanness and injustice and seeing how many people I can destroy. And at some people place, you have to come to terms with that. Maybe when you're real young, you don't, don't know. But remember, Martin, those folk weren't young. My daddy and them, they weren't young. And, and I'm not that old. <laughs> but you have to come to a point where you decide what is the greatest use of your life. Is it to be used in the service of love and justice and mercy? Or is it to be used in the service of hiding and and, and quarantining? Or is it to be used in the service of actively being on the side of meanness and injustice and hate? I pray that you choose love and mercy. And when you do, you'll also find miracles along the way. You'll find something like um, uh, the Rope Throat Chapel (laughs) where you can come. You'll find friends, you'll find people you never knew and you'll find things in life, songs in life, poetry in life, scripture in life, people in life that will give buoyancy to your soul.
1: Thank you, thank you so very much and thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you for all your work and your wonderful movement and words. We are grateful and thank you to everyone who's joined us. It is good to be in community together in this way. We want to invite you to come and visit the Rothko Chapel in person and see our newly restored space. It's absolutely stunning. We continue our virtual lecture series, Beyond the Rhetoric, Civil Rights, and Our Shared Responsibility, with three more events. The Struggle for Equality, LGBTQIA rights, with Alfonso David from Human Rights Campaign. That's coming in August. Then Defending and Advancing the Rights of Immigrants with Charles Kamasaki of Unidos, U.S. in September. American Indian Worldview on the Concept of Rights with educators and activists Dina Gilio Whitaker and Tink Tinker will be on September 30th. And This series leads right into our fall symposium in October, which will be on exploring the state of civil rights in the United States today. For more information on visiting the chapel or on our upcoming events, and to support the work of the Rothko Chapel, just visit our website. It's Rothkochapel.org. Thank you for being with us tonight.